Welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School Professor Jessica Levinson, and today we are joined again by a friend of the show, Greg Lustein. Greg is a political reporter who covers the governor's office and state politics for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and he is author of the forthcoming book with the working title, How the Peach State Turned Purple. I can't wait for this book. We just talked a little bit before we started recording about when it's going to come out. I want a signed copy, and we're excited to have you um, come back and talk about it when it comes out. So welcome back, Greg. Thank you for passing catching with us. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, you've been extremely busy lately because there obviously is uh, big voting rights news out of Georgia right now. Georgia just passed a new, uh, from my perspective, very restrictive voting law. Can you just start by walking us through what does this law do? It seems to me about four big changes here. Could you set the table, so to speak, and tell sure. what's happening. And let's talk first a little bit about what it doesn't do, because earlier versions of this law would have gone even further. They would have included uh, restrictions limiting weekend voting in Georgia, including souls to the polls, which is particularly popular with African-American voters on Sundays before elections, and would also have severely limited who can vote by absentee mail. It would have eliminated what we call no-excuse absentee balloting, which is, um, you know, provision that allows anyone who wants to vote by mail who's a registered voter to do so. Um, so those parts are gone from the, the law. And that's important because earlier versions that the Georgia Senate passed had those provisions in there and got um, a, a tremendous amount of negative attention. Um, but what remained was still a very sweeping uh, measure that includes imposing new voter ID requirements on people who mail in their ballots, um, limiting drop box usage, allowing the state takeovers of local elections, uh, which is a particular worry um, in Democratic-led counties um, where, where they've had a history of some voter mismanagement. And also, uh, one of the most controversial proposals, uh, provisions, I should say, would ban what we call line warming. And that is giving people, groups and, and advocacy outlets and just citizens who offer people pizza and Coca-Cola and water and hot chocolate and other things as they queue up in long lines. And that is seen as particularly onerous in Metro Atlanta, where unfortunately some of these polling precincts feature lines that can go five, six, seven, eight hours at a time. Yeah. I mean, when I was reading about this, that's exactly what I thought, which is the tragedy is that voting in Georgia oftentimes in certain areas means that you're going to be standing in line so long you need food and water. Mm-hmm. Let's back up for a second and take each portion of the law in turn. The voter ID law for vote-by-mail ballots, what percentage of the voters does this affect? I'm trying to suss out, you know, among all the reporting, how much of a burden is really going to be imposed here? Yeah. For, for the vast majority of Georgia voters, this this is not going to be a new burden. Um, there, there's already ID requirements when you show up to the polls in person to vote. Uh, and before, Georgia had a system that uh, was basically a signature match system um, where people would, for mail-in ballots, where um, an absentee ballot could be rejected if a voter's signature changed over times or, or didn't match up with whatever signature they had on file. Um, so advocates of these, mostly Republican chain, uh, 
mostly Republican advocates of these changes say that um, this would eliminate that subjective use of of that signature match requirement. And what this does is, again, for the vast majority of, of registered voters in Georgia do have driver's licenses or other forms of state ID, but about 3% of registered voters don't have a license or state ID number on file. And that means they'd have to submit additional documentation. Overall, it's about 200,000 people on, on Georgia's registered voting rolls that would have to get a free voter ID card or return a copy of other documentation like utility bills, passports, military IDs, that sort of thing. And for obvious reasons, um, critics of it say that, that this, this imposes a new obstacle on a system that, that had been in, in place for years in Georgia. Well, and that's the name of the game, right? And I want to get to this in a minute, but that we're, Georgia's imposing a bunch of new obstacles. And the question is, why? I mean, for, for what purpose? But before we get to that overarching question, can you explain for a moment the, one of the other provisions that you just talked about, which is this idea of empowering state officials to take over local elections boards? You know, what does this mean in plain English? I think a lot of people either go to a polling place or they mail in their ballot and they're not exactly sure what happens after or if a state official or a local official is in charge of this. Can you help demystify this particular new provision? Yeah, it's a great question because because in Georgia, the Secretary of State's office, which is a statewide p- official, oversees elections, but the elections are actually administered by the county elections boards in 159 different counties in Georgia. Georgia has the second most number of counties of any state in the nation. Um, and so there's a patchwork, there's a myriad of different uh, county elections officials, and some counties run flawless elections and others, particularly those in, in denser giant counties like in Metro Atlanta, have more problems. So the Republican-controlled legislature um, wants more oversight, wants more leeway, wants more essential control over those county systems they feel like aren't running their operations properly. They did not often cite Fulton County, Georgia's most populous county, which includes most of Atlanta, um, in their in their public uh, push for this. But reading between the lines, everyone thinks that, uh, in Georgia, thinks that this is meant as a shot at Fulton County because Fulton County has been plagued by problems over the years. And in this case, it could potentially, this new law could potentially allow the Republican-controlled legislature to put in elections officials who would decide which ballots in Fulton County get counted and which don't. And how would they make that determination? I mean, what does more control mean? So they say, we like these ballots, we don't like these ballots. How can they exercise discretion in terms of which ballots are counted? Yeah, on the local level, the county the, the county elections officials um, do have some some leeway over um, uh, over counting provisional ballots, um, counting certain absentee ballots. You saw that a lot in 2018 when certain counties. Um, Gwinnett County, another suburb of Atlanta that is now pretty solidly blue, but in 2018 wasn't, was throwing out a, a larger number of certain provisional ballots and finding signature mismatches with absentee ballots at a higher rate than other counties. So the worry is that if you have an elections board that is more scrutinizing, I should say, you know, more, more willing to, to, to um, more strict with the interpretation of the law, that can mean uh, more ballots are being tossed out for various reasons. Um, you know, will this affect 99.9% of the ballots cast in those counties? No, but 
those provisional ballots, those absentee ballots that, that came under question, um, who runs the elections board in those counties have vast say over over those procedurals. Well, and as we know from watching very carefully what happened in Georgia in the 2020 presidential election and then in the 2021 uh, Senate elections, you don't have to affect 5% of the voters to affect the outcome of the election. So all of these you know, seemingly incremental or quote unquote minor restrictions um, have the possibility, and I think frankly this might be the point, of actually swaying an election outcome. And so, you know, again, you walked us through this mm-hmm. idea of uh, voter ID restrictions that could affect 3% of voters in Georgia dealing with vote-by-mail ballots, of empowering state election officials to take over state election boards, which again could affect a small number of votes, but a key number of votes, and then limiting the number of drop boxes, ballot drop boxes. And then we talked about you know, making it a crime to give voters um, food and water in line, which of course brings up the broader question of why do you have to give voters food and water in line? Why does it take so long? So we know what the law does, and I can feel my co-host and producer Joe in the background saying, okay, Jessica, get to why. I mean, this has been so polarizing. Governor Kemp says, The law helps to uphold the integrity of the election. President Biden says this is Jim Crow in the 21st century. It's sick and un-American. What's the real purpose behind this law? Yeah, well, when you ask Governor Brian Kemp, the Republican governor of Georgia, that question, he says there is a crisis of confidence in Georgia over the election system. What he's not publicly acknowledging, and neither are other Republican uh, state officials and, and, and elected officials who support this bill, is the crisis of confidence is because of Donald Trump's lies, repeated falsehoods, conspiracy theories that he and his allies promoted for months, um, even before the November election, about absentee ballots, about false claims of widespread voter fraud and irregularities, of problems with Georgia's election machines, um, of all these various um, uh, Myths that that the president and his allies promoted um, have have seeped into the Republican electorate in Georgia, and so you know when Republicans say they want to um, correct that, you know they fix that crisis of confidence. What they're not acknowledging is that they're the ones who who started it. You know they're the ones who 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 brought it about. And poll after poll, including AJC polls, show um, a significant number of Georgia Republicans do believe there was cheating or fraud or problems with the November and January elections in Georgia, even though Republican state officials, including the Secretary of State of Georgia, Brad Raffensperger, has repeatedly said that, no, the election um, was free and fairly uh, administered, and that three separate counts of the vote showed no, showed this, essentially the same result and no widespread fraud. So the, is this akin to yelling fire and then saying, look, people were really worried that there might have been a fire? That's a good way to put it, <laughs> because, you know, extend that metaphor a little bit. But the Republicans who are worried about this fraud, the integrity of the ballot, they're the same people who are also not worried about their own elections. They're, they're saying that, you know, they're state legislative elections. And um, there was another statewide um, vote on the same ballot as the Senate races. Uh, that was for public service commissioners. So you're not hearing anyone saying the Republican who actually won that that race 
should have a recount. <laughs> you're, you're, instead, you're hearing them say there's all sorts of problems with the presidential vote, but not with their own um, elections. That's something I was going to ask you about, which is, okay, if you say that there's deep problems with the integrity of the electoral process, if there were problems with the 2020 and 2021 elections, then were there only problems when Democrats were elected, but not problems when Republicans were elected? And so, I mean, is there any member of the Georgia state legislature right now who was elected in 2020 or 2021 who says, well, maybe I need to rethink my own position. Maybe we should have uh, another election because there was so much fraud here. I mean, has yeah, anybody, none, right. None that I could find. I will say though, um, there there were a handful of Republican legislators who felt that, that those earlier, more onerous positions, um, such as eliminating no excuse absentee balloting went too far. And um, it was one of the stranger um Stranger events I've ever seen at the Georgia Capitol, but I went down to Lieutenant Governor of Georgia, Jeff Duncan's office, just to catch up with him. And I should have known because I was coming back from lunch break, but I didn't realize that the debate was going on upstairs over a version of the legislation that called for the end of no excuse absentee ballot. And usually the Lieutenant Governor's presiding over the floor, over the vote with a gavel behind a, behind a podium and everything. Um, and in this case, he was sitting in a darkened office drinking, a, I think it was a Diet Coke and watching it on TV. And I said, what's going on? And he told me point blank. He goes, I can't preside over over a measure that I don't support. Um, and four state senator, Republic, Republican state senators, they didn't vote against it. They they took a walk. They they, uh, they purposely left the floor and exempted themselves from the vote rather than vote on it. So there were some, I guess, conscientious objectors. Yeah. And it's so, I mean, I know that people will listen to this and it will sound like I'm throwing stones at Republicans and I'm really throwing stones at lawmakers who are implementing voting restrictions that seem like a solution in search of a problem. So again, we're talking with Greg Bluestein. He's a political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. We're talking about Georgia's new voting laws and We're talking about the purpose behind these voting laws. So we talked about what the law does. And is there, I mean, is it inescapable that this has everything to do with Georgia turning purple in 2020 and 2021? And is there any case to be made that there are real problems with the integrity of the elections that this particular law would solve? That's a great question because, um, no, there's not any real evidence that there was any sort of widespread or, or, or systemic irregularities with the vote. But I think there was a consensus among both parties that there needed to be some changes. And, and I'll explain a little bit why. I mean, there, there needed to be changes in terms because people are using absentee ballots. I think more than a million people voted by mail in Georgia last year. So that, that's a trend that I think is, is to stay. And so county elections officials have to cope with that. And so there's new, there's new regulations that, that, that oversee how, they're, how they count that vote so that we don't have another uh, week-long voting, vote counting period like we did after November, right? So both parties agreed on that. Um, there's also a deep desire in Georgia to eliminate the nine-week runoff we had that required the January, um, the January runoff in, in, in the Senate. Uh, and ruined Christmas and Hanukkah and Thanksgiving for so many Georgians. So under that, under this legislation, um, there is now a four-week runoff period. So 
if you have another event like that, you wouldn't, it would not go to December. It would go to either late November or early December. So we're no longer looking at January runoffs after Congress has already sworn in. So those are, those are examples of some of the changes that were broadly agreed upon by both parties. But no, when it comes to the underlying, the root of the question, if was there any reason to try to protect the vote in Georgia because of, because of widespread fraud? No. If you ask Republican sponsors of this, though, they will point to you at 2018. They'll say that when Stacey Abrams refused to concede the election because of her concerns over the integrity of the vote, that they're answering those concerns as well as their own concerns in 2020. No, that that isn't true because Stacey Abrams's concerns were were, were different. They were they were um, a, a lot of them were centered on um, the purge of the voting rolls in Georgia and other issues that restricted the vote. And some of those were addressed in legislation shortly after Brian Kemp won the election. And some of those were addressed with an entirely new voting system, $100 million plus voting system that was used for the first time broadly in Georgia last year. But Democrats find that argument for Republicans that, hey, they're responding to issues that from 2018 and 2020 to be very lacking. All right. So there's some portions of the law that have bipartisan support, but it seems like the overarching purpose of the law and the overarching effect of the law is really situated within what we're seeing throughout Mm -hmm. the country right now, which is Georgia is not alone. I think it's just the first state to enact these sweeping restrictions, but there have been hundreds of voting restrictions that have been proposed throughout the country um, since the 2020 election. And Uh, frankly, since 2013, when the Supreme Court threw out half of the Voting Rights Act. And I believe that a lot of this, uh, a lot of these restrictions might have been prevented if that decision had gone the other way. But let me ask a question, because again, we are living in a moment where we're seeing a lot of states that have Republican-controlled legislatures and uh, Republican governors proposing things that look like what just happened in Georgia. As an observer of elections, is there any chance that this could actually backfire on Republicans? If a lot of Republicans are voting by mail, and this makes it even slightly more difficult to vote by mail, could this actually have a reverse effect and be harmful for Republicans? Yeah, you know, and there's a tension with that because there's there's always a concern within campaigns that the more you talk about voter suppression, the more you end up inadvertently suppressing your own vote because you, you send out the signal to a lot of your supporters that why bother to vote? That was a tension that Stacey Abrams confronted head on in 2018 um, when she actually, if you recall, I mean, she was always a voting rights advocate, but voting rights was not the center of her campaign back then. It was healthcare, it was the economy, it was jobs. It was education. It was it was more typical issues. Um, it became voting rights near the end. It became more focused on voting rights, I should say, near the end of her campaign. And she had to kind of battle that internal tension and decided, yeah, the more I talk about it, yeah, you, you do risk some voters staying home, but you also help amplify the issue and encourage voters who do want to go out to stick through it, to wait in those long lines, to, to make sure their ballot, their absentee ballot was counted. Um, to take all these other steps, to have a plan to vote, as Democrats would say last year. And Democrats are convinced that this will backfire on Republicans. Look, they're coming into 2022 with a head of steam. They flipped the presidential contest in November for the first time since 1992. 
They won both U.S. Senate seats in huge upsets. And those are the first statewide Democrats elected since 2006. So Democrats feel like they've got momentum on their side and that all this negative attention that Republicans are getting for for passing these restrictions um, will help elevate their platforms going into next year. Not to keep the fire metaphor going, but you really are playing with fire when you start trying to manipulate who your voter base is going to be. And I think I'm comfortable knowing what the real purpose behind the law is, but I'm not at all uh, sure that it's going to work the way lawmakers and Governor Kemp intend for it to work. So, you know, we've talked about what the law does, what the purpose is behind the law and what practical effects it could have. We haven't talked about the legal challenge yet. And so before Mm -hmm. we leave this new law, almost as soon as the bill was signed, there's a lawsuit that was filed. And, you know, when I talk to my students about new election laws, this is often what happens, right? There's some kind of political earthquake moment, like the Senate is flipped. Uh, And then there's a new law. And then there's a challenge to the law. So could you talk to us a little bit about who filed the lawsuit and what the basis of the claims are here. Yeah. And the lawsuit was filed and it was long expected to be filed because advocates have been warning, hey, if these changes are enacted in law, then we will sue. The timing of it was not really well known. It was This was the big surprise in Georgia, by the way, was that, you know, at first we were thinking the final changes, the final approval of the legislation wouldn't be until a week later. The House was going to pass its version the different lawmakers were going to hash out their their differences. Session would go back a few days later. The Senate would pass its version, and there would be a kind of a late agreement right before the final gavel. And then the governor might wait another day or two or week or two to sign it. So we thought this was a longer timeline. As I got to the Capitol um, uh, a few days ago, the day of the vote, the, the, the Thursday of the vote, um, I started picking up word that, no, this could all be a done deal as soon as today. And the governor might sign it as soon as the next day. Um, and then to everyone's surprise, not only was it a done deal that day, the governor signed it within an hour of the Senate passing, giving final approval. That is how much he wanted this off his, uh, off his table. Um, and of course, there was a very high profile arrest of a black lawmaker who was trying to watch the proceedings. He was trying to watch his bill signing um, and, and was, was hauled away by authorities and, and charged with two felony crimes um, as a result. She says she's innocent, uh, of course, by the way, and, and she'll fight those challenges in court. But within three more hours or so, four more hours, a federal challenge had been filed by New Georgia Project, which is actually the voting registration group that Stacey Abrams founded in Georgia. She, she no longer runs it, but she founded it uh, about a decade or so ago. And and, and two other left-leaning um, voting voter mobilization groups. And uh, they're, they're challenging these provisions on many, many different fronts, but Um, essentially saying they violate the Voting Rights Act and they're unconstitutional. And particularly, they hone in on the voter ID restrictions that we talked about, the line warming restrictions we talked about, and other different changes that we maybe didn't mention, including one that sets a deadline to request an absentee ballot for 11 days before Election Day. Um, And the lawsuit uses very strong language, including basically saying these are, quote unquote, grab bags of this legislation is a grab bag of voting restrictions. So, Greg, you just mentioned that there was a lawmaker, a woman of color, who could not watch the bill signing and, in fact, was arrested and is facing felony charges. And as an outsider, this is just so confusing to me. Could you talk to us just a little bit more about 
what happened in this case. Yeah, and the lawmaker in question is State Representative Park Cannon. Um, she's an African American um, state legislature who represents a, a portion of Atlanta um, and is is known for being very progressive, very liberal in her stances, and is is often opposed Governor Kemp's priorities. No surprise, right? Uh, most Democrats in the Georgia legislature do. Um, she wanted to be there in person when the governor signed the bill, and he was making remarks at six thirty that were live streamed. No. No press were allowed in in his ceremonial office on, on the second floor of the state capitol doing doing uh, that bill signing. They were tape remarks that were broadcast on his Facebook page and on public television. Um, she wanted to be there, and so the um, his private office has like a door that open that that opens. It's always locked, but it opens into the the, the capitol um, lobby uh, where you know thousands of people walk walk back and forth um, most days, most pre-pandemic days, I should say. And so she's outside as he's delivering his remarks, she's outside kind of gently rapping on the door. And there's a state, uh, a Georgia state patrol trooper who's in front of her and he's telling her not to do that. And you can hear it because I, I obtained video of it from an activist who was shooting it live. And he says something to the effect of, if you do it again, I'll have to detain you or something to that effect. And she does it again. And the next thing you know it, he has arrested her and is forcibly removing her from the Capitol grounds into a, a state patrol vehicle as activists and others are horrified. I mean, you can hear screaming, what are you doing? And she's horrified. Why are you arresting me? And one of the reasons she's horrified, there's many reasons why she was horrified, but one of them is that there's in the Georgia constitution, it says that state lawmakers cannot be arrested during a legislative session unless they're committing a felony. So they ended up charging her with two felonies, um, two felony counts. Um, which she says she'll fight. Um, and I suspect they'll probably either be dropped or kind of written off um, because of all the negative press that the, that the state has gotten from this. But it's all on video. Um, and she's actually headlining a rally, a get out the vote rally sort of thing to, to fight against these voting rights restrictions. Um, and as I wrote in the AJC's paper, she has become this very visceral symbol of the debate in Georgia over voting rights. And I won't be surprised to hear not only this law become up in the federal debate over efforts to expand voting rights, but also her arrest will probably be summoned up. Yeah, it allows people who are opposed to the new law, I think, to have um, a symbol, a hero, and mm -hmm. and somebody really, well, I mean, this story you told is extraordinary, and I'll let it speak for itself. And you mentioned, just for passing judgment listeners, you mentioned the New Georgia project that Stacey Abrams started. I'm going to remind listeners that we have an episode with Ense Ufat, um, who now runs the project. And we were able to talk to her. I believe it was like, it felt like, I don't know, 45 minutes after the 2020 election results were announced. And so, Greg, we know you're extraordinarily busy. And I will end with this question, which is, can you preview your book, um, your forthcoming book for us really briefly? It's again, the working title, How the Peach State Turned Purple. And I'm going to ask you the obvious question, how did it? <laughs> well, the, the obvious answer is this was not some overnight, um, you know, miracle. Um, this, this was the work of, of a painstaking work of of activists and officials and leaders like Stacey Abrams and Nikita Williams, who's now a U.S. U.S. House member, um, 
who kind of set the stage for, for years for this. But I kind of go through some of the seminal moments, starting with the, uh, the 2016 election and the 2017 build up to the 2018 race for governor in Georgia, which we all live down here in Georgia. But I think for a national audience, some of the different controversies and, and quirks will be a, a, amazing to read about. And then I go into um, not only 2020 and the run-up to the race for president, but also the, the wild epic runoffs we had in 2021, just nine weeks later. So uh, it, it was a once in a probably lifetime century type election where you had two U.S. Senate runoffs on the same day in the same state that affected control of the Senate and the legislative agenda of a newly sworn in president. So sweeping ramifications in Georgia and all sorts of craziness that I got to live through that happened down here while doing those runoffs. I can't wait to read the book, as you said, once it's finished and written. Passing Judgment listeners, we have been speaking with Greg Bluestein. He's a reporter at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and he is author of the forthcoming book, How the Peach State Turned Purple. Greg, I had, again, a lovely time chatting with you. Thank you for coming back to Passing Judgment. Thank you so much for having me. You can find Greg on Twitter at Bluestein. You can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica, the podcast on Twitter at Pass Judgment Pod, and on Instagram at Passing Judgment Pod. And much to my chagrin, we have joined TikTok. More information on that later. We have to provide content there. And thank you to our listeners. We love having these conversations with you. And we are so lucky to have people who are on the ground. Like, Greg, you are in such high demand right now. We're grateful for your time. And we wish all of our listeners a good day. Mm-hmm.